You've tuned in to Columbia Calling, your first stop for everything you want to know about Columbia. How and where to invest, where to visit. From the Pacific to the Caribbean, the Andes Mountains to the Amazon jungle, Columbia has a slice of everything. Shooting from the hip, answering the questions that need answering. Here's your host, the journalist and hotelier, Richard McCall, shedding some light on the fashionable South American destination of Colombia. It's that time of the week again, folks. This is me, your host, Richard McCall, here in Bogota, Colombia, 2,600 meters closer to the stars. And this is episode 396 of the Columbia Calling podcast. This week's very special guest will be Lina Beatriz Pinto Garcia. And we're talking about the, well, I guess the rapid expansion of leishmaniasis, the tropical disease, that took place across Colombia and especially in the jungle areas. Uh, and it corresponds totally to the upturn in military activities and, uh, you know, the war, the conflict between the guerrillas and the Colombian armed forces. So a fascinating look at how an exponential increase in leishmaniasis started in the mid-1990s and 2000s when, let's say, the conflict theater in Colombia increased dramatically. So we'll be talking about that. And she's down in Hamundi. That's right near to Cali. And she'll be talking to us about the Diseased Landscapes Project. So that's done with Los Andes University, Oxford University, and other academic outfits as well. Well, you'll know that on Monday, all social media, most social media, aside from Twitter, I think, were down. So hence the delay on the Monday newscast this week for those subscribers out there. Not a lot we could do about that. With WhatsApp down, we couldn't send out the messages. But for those of you who have Signal or Telegram, we were able to send out the news updates. And we'll remind you all, of course, that for as little as $2 a month, you can subscribe to the uh, Columbia uh, Calling newscast reported by journalist Emily Hart, and it will arrive, WhatsApp permitting, uh, to your WhatsApp accounts and anything else uh, on Mondays. So I'm going to uh, pass it over now to Emily Hart, and a thank you to all of you out there who continue to support us on Patreon. That's www.patreon.com forward slash Columbia Calling. Thank you so much. We've had some great shows of late. Uh, of course, Dr. Paula Cubillos last week with Hasta Siempre Colombia, which was a somber it struck a somber tone, and uh, people have written in about it. And, of course, prior to that, Jordan Salama, the uh, author. Uh, and prior to that, of course, Joshua Collins, a freelance journalist who is out in Catatumbo, uh, visiting and reporting on one of Colombia's, well, most complicated regions and coca-cultivating regions. So, very interesting shows. Next week, we've got an academic from Austin, Texas, Alexander Diamond, and he'll be talking about a documentary he made and some of the trouble that he got into, I think, uh, making this uh, documentary around the Caribbean coast. So, well, please stay tuned. Anyway, I'm Richard McCall. This is episode 396. Over to Emily Hart with the news, and then on to the third segment with Dr. Lina Beatriz Pinto Garcia. So don't go away. I'm Emily Hart, and these are your top stories for the week of October 4th, 2021. 
A leak of more than 11.9 million confidential documents has brought to light the secret fortunes of some of the world's most influential people, including numerous members of the Colombian elite. Known as the Pandora Papers, the largest journalistic collaboration in history shines a light on the offshore industry. A world of trusts, shell companies, hidden beneficiaries and powerful law firms in places like the British Virgin Islands or Panama. Offshore companies are generally used to hide ownership of assets and thereby exempt beneficiaries from tax or legal liability. The OECD estimates the equivalent of 27% of Latin America's financial wealth is siphoned off to offshore companies every year, amounting to 22 billion US dollars in lost taxes. Of the 35 presidents or former presidents who appear in the documents, 14 belong to this region. It has been revealed that three of the region's sitting heads of state and 11 former presidents have operated tax havens, along with more than 90 politicians and senior officials. The Colombian chapter of the Pandora Papers includes 588 owners of offshore companies. Among them are two former presidents, Andrés Pastrana and César Caviria, as well as Colombia's richest man, Luis Carlos Sarmiento, three members of banking conglomerate dynasty, the Hilinski family, and even Shakira. The majority claim that their assets were declared to the DIAN, Colombia's tax authority. However, according to the Pandora Papers, the current director of the DIAN, Lisandro Junco Ribeira, created a company in Delaware. He also reportedly has an account in Cyprus and a virtual office in London, managed through a Dubai-based provider. Also through a company in Panama, Ángela María Orozco, Minister of Transport, and Marta Lucía Ramírez, Vice President, participated in a business deal in the British Virgin Islands with an investor who was convicted of money laundering. A former senator, governor of Antioquia and mayor of Medellín, Luis Alfredo Ramos, has been sentenced to almost eight years in prison for an illegal association with paramilitary groups, particularly with the AUC, the United Self-Defence Forces of Colombia and its leaders, the Castaño brothers. A court determined that Ramos associated with paramilitary organisations for several years and placed public office at the service of those groups. Despite the conviction of Ramos and a, a criminal investigation against his son Esteban, the Ramos clan continues to have political influence, particularly in Medellín, where a second son is involved in mayoral politics. A conservative politician since the age of 22, Ramos was also head of debate for Ivan Duca's presidential campaign. He has been a key political ally of former President Alvaro Uribe. Uribe's own investigation for witness tampering recommences this week. The Supreme Court's investigation chamber concluded that, through third parties such as his former lawyer and a former congressman, Uribe had pressured witnesses to change their testimony about links between paramilitary groups and himself. Clashes between FARC dissidents and guerrilla group, the ELN, have displaced at least 250 people in Argelia, Cauca. In Argelia, this was the second mass displacement in September and the 14th in 2021. Renewed violence and armed conflict in Colombia forced more than 57,000 people to flee their homes between January and August this year. According to the United Nations, this is an increase of 135% compared to the same period in 2020. Colombia continues to report the highest number of internally displaced people worldwide. And in response to this new data, the Inter-American Commission of Human Rights made a special call to the Colombian state to strengthen the implementation of the peace agreement. 
They state that it constitutes an ideal tool to confront the structural causes of violence in the country. In international migration news, in Nekokli, Antioquia, the crisis continues. Around 20,000 migrants are stuck on the border with Panama, many from Haiti and Cuba, hoping to continue their journey north towards the USA. The emergency began at the end of July and has been worsened by a shortage of drinking water and basic sanitation. And coronavirus case numbers remain low, at around 1,500 new daily cases on average in Colombia. More than half the country has had one dose of vaccination and a third are now fully vaccinated. Third doses will be administered where necessary and the government has proposed incentives, including shopping discounts on VAT-free days for those with vaccination cards. And the economy is also showing signs of recovery from the pandemic. Unemployment in August was 12.3%, similar to that of March 2020, a month before the consequences of the pandemic started to be seen. The employment gap between men and women is also narrowing, though it is still high, at 7%. Those were your top stories from Colombia for this week. Thanks for listening. And we're back. This is episode 396 of the Columbia Calling podcast. Our very special guest this week is uh, Dr. Lina Beatriz Pinto Garcia. Uh, she's a postdoctoral researcher at the CIDER, that's a, a division at Los Andes, a research division at Los Andes University in Bogota. And, well, Lena came to my attention through various people on Twitter and social media saying, you should get this person on. She's got some really fascinating investigations. And the one that caught my attention, and she's in Hamundi, so close to Cali in the southwest of Colombia right now. And what caught my attention is this, well, she does, it's, it's, it's called diseased landscapes. But let's, before we get into that, Lena, thank you so much for coming on the Columbia Calling Podcast. No, thank you so much for the invitation. It's really a pleasure to be here. And it's really cool to be able to share a little bit of what I do and who I am with all of your listeners. No, so thank you for the invitation. You, yeah, and we are very lucky because Lena is about about to have a baby in about two weeks, I think, <laughs> or less. Yeah. <laughs> so so everyone out there is sending you the positive vibes and everything's great. And it's an amazing, it's an amazing experience. There's nothing else like it. And, and we wish you all the best in this. And it's a, definitely a new phase in life because nothing is the same. <laughs> so, Thank you so much. You're most welcome. So Lena, tell mm -hmm. us a little bit because you've been doing this diseased landscapes project and I know it's with universities here in Colombia and Oxford University in, in England. Just tell us a bit about it because of course it's all based on Colombia and leishmaniasis and tropical diseases and coca cultivations and everything that we need to hear about, uh, you know, for those of us who are, I would say, Colombianists. So I got into this project as a kind of something that started from my PhD research. Actually, during my PhD research, uh, which I finished last year, uh, already during, during the pandemic, um, I did an investigation on an ethnographic investigation on the relationship between cutaneous leishmaniasis and the Colombian armed conflict. And that part of this research I conducted it uh, in Tumaco, 
which is uh, located on the Colombian Pacific coast, uh, close to the very close, to, is actually the, the bordering municipality between Colombia and Ecuador. And at this particular place, I realized that most of the cases of leishmaniasis that I was, uh, yeah, I was, I was uh, having contact with, um, they were from people working in, in coca cultivation and coca crops and in processing coca for the uh, for transforming coca into cocaine. So um, that was something that I kind of pointed out during my dissertation, but it's something that I didn't have the, the, the time and the scope also to analyze further. So that's why I decided to get into this. This is landscapes projects, mostly relating environmental health, uh, extract, like agrarian extractivism in this case of coca plantations and coca cultivation, and also coca eradication and how it relates to health problems for humans and also non-humans. Um, so that's why we end up thinking about this project. We put it together in collaboration with uh, INSYS, uh, at Oxford University, which is the Institute for Science, Innovation, and Society at Oxford, um, also with the Department of Global Health and Social Medicine at King's College London, and CIDER, uh, which is the Interdisciplinary Center for Development Studies at Universidad de Los Andes. Uh, so it's a very highly interdisciplinary project that, again, explores environmental and human health and how this relates to agrarian extractivism, in this case, coca cultivation, uh, coca eradication, and also migration, because in, in, in this part, well, we are focusing on this time in El Catatumbo, uh, which is this region, again, close to the border, but this time between Colombia and Venezuela. And in this region, Venezuelans coming, uh, coming like in large numbers to Colombia are being... Uh, they have become, many of them, they have become workers in these coca fields. Uh, so they are very, very much uh, suffering from this disease that we will, I guess, talk more about because I probably <laughs> no one knows what it is. Well, uh, first and foremost, and I, I will never be forgiven if I don't tell you that my wife is doing her master's at Global Health at the University of London. So there you go. I'll never get away. And okay. she's the most excited about this interview because it's for her it's it's fascinating and she's explained some of the situations to me but i want to know i mean you get into this and it's this agrarian extractivism it's the you know the uh, exploitation of these lands for coca and then you've studied the area with tumaco right on the border with ecuador and the area of Catatumbo, which actually we talked about uh, a couple of podcasts ago with Joshua Collins, who was up there uh, as a journalist uh, visiting the coca fields. And so, of course, that's up on the Venezuelan border. So it's this, this can't just be a border thing, but you've taken it into account on the borders, because I'm sure in southwest Cauca and so on, there's leishmaniasis, but it's not it's not border. But, but you've got a particularly interesting uh, perspective from the borders, from the migration. And it, so it's Venezuelans coming through the Venezuelan border, but for, on the Ecuadorian border with Colombia, who are the people, the migrations there? Actually, in Tumaco is not, well, yeah, there's migration from, there's a, a longer history probably on that because of the war on drugs and the 
praying of glyphosate in areas such as Putumayo and Caquetá, many, many, many populations, like mostly mestizo populations, they ended up migrating to the Pacific coast where or where most of the coca plantation had moved to since the 2000s. So the population that we see they're affected by leishmaniasis because they work in these coca plantations are mostly mestizos, not black populations are who are like the uh, kind of like the inhabitants for excellence of uh, of the Pacific coast. But in this case, it is mostly mestizo populations, campesinos who have uh, who are now working in these coca fields and who have been displaced because of the war on drugs in Putumayo and Caquetá and now live for 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 some time now in in areas like Tumaco. Um, however, uh, leishmaniasis is not necessarily a, a disease that is related only to migrants coming from one place to the other and settling there is mostly related, well, in Colombia to the armed conflict in general, which also entail, entails a lot of migration from combatants. And that's why they take the disease from one place to another. Uh, but um, maybe it's a coincidence that I have been in these two places that are border places, although leishmaniasis is mostly a disease that is related to jungle areas, to the selva. So that's why, uh, although in, in many, many countries in Latin America face this uh, health problem, in Colombia, um, it is characteristic and particular that the, the disease has a strong, very strong attachment to the war uh, because uh, these jungles, the selvas, have been the main theater of war in Colombia and that's why combatants of the state, so soldiers, but also paramilitaries and guerrillas, they have been the populations most affected by this disease. Uh, so that that was actually the focus of my of my earlier work, let's say. And now I related that to mostly to civilians working on coca cultivation, which is also, of course, very much entangled with the armed conflict, but in from a, a little bit of a different perspective than combatants, right? Yeah. Definitely, but uh, it's okay. It's about it, we need to we need to explain to my listeners, most of whom I believe will know what leishmaniasis is, but we need to explain it. Uh, explain it for me. It's about one of the few tropical diseases I haven't had. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I'm not going to joke about it. I've had typhoid, dengue, hemorrhagic dengue, malaria. Uh, I can't remember what else I've had, but anyway, uh, tell us about leishmaniasis. So leishmaniasis is a, uh, well, there are two major forms of leishmaniasis. There's cutaneous leishmaniasis and viteral leishmaniasis. In Colombia, uh, the most prevalent form of the disease, although we have both, uh, the most prevalent form of the disease, so the 98% of leishmaniasis cases in Colombia is cutaneous leishmaniasis. So it's a disease that affects the skin. Once you have been bitten by a sandfly, which is a tiny, tiny insect that lives in the jungle, uh, and this tiny insect transmits a microscopic parasite that is called leishmania, the leishmania parasite. And this parasite leads to the formation of ulcers on the skin of lesions that start growing, and they are not that painful, 
but they bother you. They look kind of very disgusting and they, uh, in certain cases, they expand. So they grow like into the depth of the skin and also, how to say it, like on the surface of the skin forming this like circular uh, lesions that um, don't heal. That's the problem with the disease. They, they resist healing. So they don't form as scar very easily and they do, do need pharmaceuticals. The other type of the disease that I was telling you about, that is visceral leishmaniasis, is not very common in Colombia. It's restricted to some very specific areas and is not like a major public health issue here, while it is a major issue in countries like Brazil and India, for example, but not in Colombia. In Colombia, the disease I have been studying and also the disease that is related to the conflict and to uh, coca plantations, for example, is uh, cutaneous leishmaniasis. So when I say leishmaniasis, I'm referring actually to cutaneous, to the cutaneous form, which is this skin form of the disease that is not deadly. Well, the visceral form can be deadly. The cutaneous form is not deadly. So you don't, you never die from that. But it's uh, very annoying to have it. And especially if you have like a lesion that never cars over. So you don't, you, you have it all the time raw and open and sometimes like smelling badly because of additional infections because of uh, bacteria and fungi, then you start worrying about it and you feel you need desperately treatment to get this thing uh, to heal. So, I mean, it looks like, from what I understand and the pictures that I've seen, is it's just this open wound that just keeps on kind of, as if you were sort of burning the edges of paper and it was, you know, receding. Um, and then you remain horribly disfigured, right? I mean, is there a it way? It depends. Of, okay. like, for some people, it, it can just be like a tiny circular thing that doesn't grow that much. For some others, it can grow a lot and then it becomes super scary and something that worries you a lot in your daily life. For some other people, for example, the parasites can migrate to, to the mucosal membranes. That's why they also talk about mucosal leishmaniasis, which is when the parasites move to the nose or the mouth. And then this can lead to the, the, like mutilations, the disfigurations of the face. But this also happens in very rare cases. It's like 4% in Colombia. Uh, one, yeah, it's like very, it's very small percentage compared to the people who just have like the skin lesions, usually in parts of the body that are always exposed, like the arms or the legs where the sun flies have access to our skin to bite us. Uh, but the fact that it can eventually maybe lead to these uh, larger problems or more concerning problems, such as like the migration of parasites to the mouth, nose, throat, uh, then that, that worries a lot of people. And it, that, that information kind of makes part of our understanding of the disease in the country and also how we deal about it. And the cure is just incredibly strong antibiotics on a on a drip, a suero, or something like that. The that is that is like a huge part of my research uh, because the treatment that is used to deal with leishmaniasis in Colombia, so the, the what is called the first line therapy, so the standard treatment that is used for that, it's called glucantine. It is a a treatment that was developed in the 1940s, actually very long time ago in the context of the Second World War. 
And uh, glucantime in particular is produced by Sanofi, this large uh, pharmaceutical company from France. And it's an extremely toxic medicine that can even lead to death, even though the disease is not deadly. So as you can imagine, like one of the populations that are most affected by these diseases are soldiers of the Colombian military and kind of they have a very privileged access to this treatment compared to other populations in rural areas of Colombia, like guerrillas and civilians, they don't have easy access to these drugs. And I, I can also explain why. By, but the fact that soldiers get privileged access to this drug uh, is also concerning because it is such a toxic treatment that you get it so much into like injected into your bodies that soldiers also end up suffering from violence because of repetitive treatment with this drug uh, that has been used for years by the army in order to put soldiers back over and over again into the selva and make them like part of this war machine that never stops. Um, so yeah, the treatment is a super concerning part of, of, of the issue. And also, according, for example, for, from some, uh, according to some people from the guerrillas, it's kind of like the, the link that holds together Leishmaniasis and the armed conflict is the treatment. Um, and this is so, or they say so, um, because, I, as I was saying, the glucantine, this injectable drug, is controlled 100% by the state and is not made available to the people in rural areas that actually need it. It's controlled in a way that those who have access to it are mostly soldiers of the Colombian army, while guerrillas and civilians have suffered almost insurmountable barriers to access to treatment. So it has been weaponized um, as a strategy to harm uh, guerrillas and as is common in Colombia with the armed conflict, the ones who end up suffering most from this uh, policies and practices and regulations are civilians because guerrillas anyway, they are very powerful or they have been or they were very powerful actors in rural Colombia and they managed through black market and smuggling to get access to the drug. But civilians are just in the... In, yeah, in a limbo there. Kind of collateral damage on this one. Is this, this is where the, the phrase you use in one of your essays, the pharmaceuticalization <laughs> of the conflict in Colombia. And I can jump in with some anecdotes there because when I was in Medellin in hospital many, many years ago being treated for, I don't know what, what uh, yeah, there was the malaria. They made me sign documents that I would not sell the drugs on. And it was and it did say like to, you know, illegal groups and stuff. And of course, I wasn't going to because I needed the drugs, but it did strike me as evil. Um, you know, it almost it's kind of biological warfare uh, <laughs> in that way. And then the other thing I wanted to mention is that I have a friend who studied with me on my 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 doctorate. He's a captain in the army, and he he spent lots of time in in, in the jungles in the south, uh, Putumayo, Caqueta. Uh, I think he was in Norte Santander quite a bit. You know, someone who's been a career military officer, and he said there were times where the guerrillas 
were so good at getting through the jungle that they would lead uh, soldiers deliberately on fake paths and fake pathways into areas where they knew there were the sandflies that had leishmaniasis. Of course, the guerrillas would know they had their way out, but they would lead the soldiers into these areas because a soldier gets leishmaniasis and you take him out of the the conflict, the theater, as you said. You know, and, and I found that that incredible because, it's, again, it's another angle of this biological warfare using nature in this in this way and i i've never forgotten it i mean i forget a lot of things but i've never forgotten that because it really resonated with me it's like wow look at this and uh and and so i mean i just find it so it's so confusing but so clear at the same time and i don't know how i feel about the state controlling medicines i don't know how i feel about that I, i'm sure i'll get jumped on by my trolls <laughs> for saying that. But, uh, and then you have another phrase referring to this. It's, you know, it's referred to, leishmaniasis has been referred to as a subversive disease. So, of course, it's a disease that the gorillas get or that, the, that uh, people in, I don't know, illicit groups get because they spend their times in the jungles. But, of course, it's not a subversive disease. It's a disease that affects everyone. But everyone who are who is involved in these these areas, and so your research, which is fascinating, when we look at the diseased landscapes, is not only putting the guerrillas, not only putting the soldiers, but when, now when you're talking about the civilians working in the coca fields, so they are more exposed to it. it I mean, what have been your findings? Because, of course, you've been down to Tumaco and you've been to Catatumbo for these things. As you said, it's ethnographic. What has been the experiences amongst these people? Have you seen people suffering from the leishmaniasis? Have you talked to them about their work and so on? Yeah, um, actually, well, I have. I, I was a lot in, in places like uh, Tumaco. I have been less able to be to places to Catatumbo because of my pregnancy, but I have like uh, very nice co-workers and colleagues doing the uh, field work for us. Uh, Juan Camilo Montoya and Alejandro Cañizares. Um, so they are part of our research team. And um, what we have found so far is that there is um, there is a state discourse that, at least in Catatumbo, this is how, how this seems to be working, is that the state uh, have, I mean, the public health uh, institutions, they have difficulties to enter areas that are and to work in areas that are very much affected by the conflict still and even worse now in this uh quote-unquote post-conflict phase um and at the same time this leads to an invisibility of the relationship between leishmaniasis for example and uh uh coca plantations because these are zones where it is hard to so it's a disease that in general is underreported but especially like if you have a lot of conflict and violence going on, it's very hard for people to move to health centers, to hospitals, to get this, whatever they have, like the lesion checked and see if it's leishmaniasis or not, and then get treatment. Also for Venezuelans, well, there's another level of complexity because they, they are not covered by um, our healthcare system. They are only covered as long as they have an... Uh, 
health problem that is considered an urgency or an emergency. Um, so what happens in these areas is sometimes, for example, health workers help Venezuelans to pass a leishmaniasis lesion as an urgency, even if it's not, just for help them to get some access to diagnosis and treatment. And what also happens is that uh, the state is kind of, in, in a way, blind to the problem, and they mostly talk about how leishmaniasis is related, for example, to coca plant, to sorry, to coffee plantations in southern areas of the of the Department of Norte Santander, where there's no conflict and they have more access to the populations and to cases and so on. But that produces this kind of um, biased picture of the problem uh, that is not that doesn't account for the ways in which conflict coca migrants come together and are entangled in this uh, in this in this issue um in the case of um yeah i also wanted to mention in relation to what you were saying before i ha i know this has some like yeah i think it's important to mention that the military and the guerrillas they both uh think or many of them think that uh leishmaniasis was actually used as a biological weapon that this was, for example, guerrillas, they think that the military released this disease into the jungle in order to harm them. And, and the military, they think it was guerrillas who somehow liberated the parasite into the jungle in order to affect them. The, the truth is that this disease has been in uh, South America before the Spanish came here. Okay. So it's been a, a disease that has always been there. Um, so there's no kind of a release of a parasite uh, as, 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 as you would imagine in a biological war. For example, there's no like uh, engineering of a parasite or of a pathogen in order to harm the other group. But that doesn't mean that it's not been or that it hasn't been used as in a strategic ways in order to harm the other. So the most visible aspect of this is what I was mentioning earlier, like the, the control, the restrictive control on the treatment uh, that ends up harming guerrillas and civilians um, and dogs. We can also talk about that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, but as you said, I've also heard, uh, for example, there was an article or a, 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 like a written piece I think it was in El Tiempo from the 90s. Like I found it once, I read it, I thought it was fascinating and then I lost it and I have never been able to find, find it again. But it said something like that, how guerrillas used to lead uh, troops of the Colombian military into certain areas where they knew there was a lot of sand flies and they just waited, you know, until like without shooting or using any gun, they just waited there and then the military started evacuating one soldier after the other, after the other, until the, the military weren't there anymore because of leishmaniasis. Like, because the military considers this disease a professional disease or an occupational disease. They are obligated, although they don't do it timely, but they are obligated to evacuate soldiers for them to access diagnosis and treatment some, in some other place far away from the, from the jungle, right? So that, that was super interesting. And I also heard, for example, how they have done it with snakes. Like they know certain areas where snakes are living and they know that a lot of snake bites are going to happen in certain places. So they kind of make the army to concentrate in those areas 
because they know like snakes are going to do the job for them. Um, so it's really, really interesting what is going on there. Uh, and also like this, all these technological devices that kind of the military and guerrillas have come to in order to uh, address the problem. That that is also fascinating for me. I can talk more about that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I, I mean, I, I didn't I didn't think about the snakes. I mean, I guess there are areas that are, well, you know, more inhabited, populated by snakes, and therefore, yeah, you could send people. I'd never thought about that at all. I mean, leishmaniasis. I well, yeah, um, but so. I mean, I think we need to we need to sort of get some other basics out there. Is is the figures then for leishmaniasis in Colombia? Uh, and you you've been you've mentioned okay, so they talk about the leishmaniasis in the coffee cultivations in sort of let's say lo- lower or uh, more southern regions of Norte Santander, or uh, and not in the co- in coca regions. So therefore, the figures are inaccurate cases of leishmaniasis which of course then allows the government to play a different game uh and i mean do we have any figures of, of recent cases and percentages uh, i mean do we know how prevalent this is because i mean it's 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 almost like a leishmaniasis not to belittle it a bit it's it's like a horror film isn't it i mean <laughs> this sort of thing well, it, it depends. Actually, for some people, it's something you can live with for many years, and it's so common in rural areas. That for some, and, and it has many different names in rural areas. So, for example, in the Pacific, they call it guaral, and in most of the country, they call it pitu. Um, so it's and that's also very confusing because pitu is also the way to call shagal disease, which is a very different, also vector-borne, but still, it's a very different disease. And there's a lot of confusion there that we can also talk about, but. Um, the figures, as I said, like there's a huge problem of underreporting in general in the world because, as I was saying, like some people just live with that, and in some cases it just heals. You know, you like your immune system is able to fight the disease and lay and, and lead to a, a the healing process of the of the body, so you don't need any treatment. But in other cases, it can become very bad. Um, so the people who end up kind of approaching healthcare institutions and those cases that get counted or that that figure in in the public health databases of the national institute of health are just a small portion of the real cases out there of course for example guerrillas at a certain point uh especially uh when it became very tough for them to leave the selva and and go to see a doctor in a health center or um like guerrilla cases, of course, are underreported. Like they don't often go to health centers. Uh, they try to deal with, at least that was with when the FARC was operating, they try to deal with their, their own health problems within the organization and, and they avoided a lot to uh, leave the jungle. It would have to be a very extreme case when they allow people to leave the jungle in order to check what was going on with their health uh, in a health center hospital or somewhere outside the jungle. So um, there's also the other component that you were also talking about because the disease is a stigmatized as a gorilla disease or as a subversive disease. People are very afraid in certain areas of the country to let others know that they have leishmaniasis. And, and this can be in, in some areas of the country there's no stigmatization very much working on, 
while in others, for example, where the FARC had an important um, presence, uh, in those areas, the stigmatization works very hard. So they are super afraid to get in touch with medical uh, professionals or with health workers because they don't want them to think they are guerrillas and this information in some cases ends up uh, reaching the military, the police, and then they start being targeted as guerrilla members. Also, in some, which is very, um, yeah, like one of those things that you live in Colombia and that you don't believe about it, but it's in the midst of this violence that has become so everyday thing for us. Um, in some of the testimonies that paramilitaries provided during the um, their demobilization process, so in the scope of the La Ley de, Just de, de Justicia y Paz, um, there are some testimonies of paramilitaries saying that lishmaniasis marks on the body were one of the many um, criteria they used to decide if someone was a guerrilla member or not, and then to proceed practicing violence on this person, like killing them. Or So it's like lishmaniasis marks on the body has have been actually used to kill people and to affect people and to harm people. And this is very paradoxical in the sense, again, that this is not even a deadly disease. So you end up dying, it's kind of like the social construction of a, of a non-deadly disease into a deadly one because of the stigma. Um, so again, like the figures are super confusing, are not reliable, but uh, people for very, very long time, they talked about 14,000 cases in Colombia every year. Then in, in, in moments where the war was more intense, they talked about 20,000 cases a year. Uh, and, and one of the records we have is that in the mid of the 2000s, mid 2000s, we had like the like a huge peak of leishmaniasis cases. This also um, talks about how the military strategy during Alvaro Uribe's government changed in dramatic ways, became like the recruitment of soldiers increased by more than 30%. Soldiers was, were asked not just to enter the selva and leave it, but go to the selva and stay there for several months. And these were populations that many of them were kind of naive to leishmaniasis, so they had never had contact with the with the vector or the parasite, so they became very easily um, vulnerable to the disease. And then the military had like a, a peak of cases, a large epidemic, uh, in the mid 2000s, and that's why Lishmaniasis at this point, especially in you know in the history of our conflict, it was during during Alvaro Uribe's government that Lishmaniasis turned into a problem for the a major problem for the military and a major problem for the state in order to keep going with this war, and they had to solve it somehow. So it, it's all it all it became even more more stigmatization on one side, more control of the treatment on the other side more provision of treatment for soldiers in a very, I would say, non-responsible way. And, and the problem in general became more, more acute and the numbers also higher. Amazing. And yet these numbers will be less than the actual numbers, won't they? I mean, that's the yeah. thing. You, you, you talk about the, a, a spike at 20,000 or so, but it's, it's going to be much higher because, of course, the people from those regions aren't included, the guerrillas aren't included. It's, it's amazing. And so... 
Can we conclude, and there's a dangerous word, <laughs> in, I know, in academic fields, but that the conflict led to the extension of the conflict and the intensification of the Colombian conflict led to an increase in cases of lichoniasis? We can we can safely say that. Okay, um, good. <laughs> I, and that <laughs> I think that, and I think that's part of why my research shows that uh, it was especially during this time in the mid two thousands that the problem became a major problem. Became um, also like I, I talk about these fourteen thousand cases or twenty thousand cases when you compare that to other diseases, for example, malaria, that is another vector borne disease that is very much prevalent in Colombia the numbers of malaria are much higher. So, and because malaria, for example, is a deadly disease, the state has like a huge concern for malaria and to do things like the malaria strategy is kind of bold in the in the, in the in Colombia. Uh, like there are, for example, community volunteers who are trained to diagnose malaria in very remote areas of the country. And also the, they provide treatment to these people while leishmaniasis is a disease that has most like the numbers, the figures are much more smaller. It's not a deadly thing. So kind of as as, as a um, public health worker told me, like the the state can afford not to do anything. You know, you don't have people dying from that. It's not like one of those things that um, turns on alarms in the in the international public health institutions. It's something that you can just don't care about and still harm a lot of people while doing that. Um, so, yeah, during during the most acute years of the war, during the mid-2000s, it is, it is remarkable how this became a thing for the state. So it was it was a thing before, but it was a minor thing. But then when it, it's with, when it uh, created lots of problems for the army and for uh, being able to ensure uh, domination and presence in areas they have fought for and they, they were losing it because of Lishmaniasis. Like also, uh, I remember an officer of the army telling me like, for example, you go to an area that is endemic for Lishmaniasis and you enter there with a, with, with a large like group of people, 200 something. And then because of Lishmaniasis, then in, in a couple of weeks you have 180 and then you have 150 and then you have 130 and then you don't have like a battalion anymore and then you end up losing whatever you have fought for in the war and and that became a major thing uh during Uribe's time so that's why they created in 2005 um the el centro de recuperación de la lishmania de la lishmaniasis which is the uh, Center for Lishmaniasis Recovery, also called sometimes uh, Center for Lishmaniasis Rehabilitation, which is located within the Silva Plaza's battalion that is located in Duitama in Boyacá. And it is a, a clinic, basically, uh, that is uh, devoted to exclusively treat Lishmaniasis in soldiers, in active soldiers of the army. So, so, so huge was the problem that they had to create infrastructures and procedures in order to deal with that. And there's no other uh, disease or condition that receives that exclusive um, and so elaborated attention within the army. For example, there's no a malaria recovery center or, right? Like there's like this thing that is called with a specific name of a disease and that the, the, the whole 
and that's also part of what I did during my uh, PhD research. I was many months um, in this uh, center looking at the experience of soldiers going through treatment of leishmaniasis and, and how they experienced you, you that. You were there in the base in Duitama. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. I, was, I was like for three, four months there. Wow. In 2016, 2017. And, and that, that was uh, amazing also because um, for the army, the center, which is called the CRL, the Lisbonian Recovery Center, it's a source of pride, you know? It's one of those things that they think is kind of like, a, it's, it's sometimes pictured as a good legacy of the war. Like that, that the Leishmaniasis program within the military is exemplary for other countries. It's exemplary in the ways they are organizing how they treat all these soldiers against this disease that is a neglected tropical issue and so on. And then when I was there and I realized what I was telling you at the beginning, like how cruel it is that they put soldiers under repetitive cycles of treatment because they need soldiers to put them back into the jungle as soon as possible. So they treat them over and over and over with I think soldiers themselves call poison. Um, so it's, it's, it's really, really uh, worrying and sad and, and cruel. But a, an incredibly important piece of research uh, to have been in there and to have viewed it perhaps not from a medical background, from an ethnographic one. I think that's, you know, because we can look at stats and we can look at the, the, the drug that's used, but to have been there amongst the soldiers and then amongst the campesinos or the coca growers or the people, I guess the raspachines, the guys who pick the coca leaves for them. Wow, it's, it's a really, it's an intense experience, this. Uh, uh, so what, you know, we have to wind this down, unfortunately, because I think we could talk for hours. I think the, you know, we're in a, in, in inverted commas, post-conflict situation with, uh, well, you've got the ex-combatants from the FARC, and then you've got dissident FARC, and then you've got the other illegal groups, and then you've got the sort of post-paramilitary groups or newly armed groups or whatever they're called now, the Clan del Golfo and others. You've got Venezuelans in search and desperate need of jobs, so they're ending up in these places, and we've got more coca cultivation. Was it less coca cultivation than, than before, but more cocaine production, I think it is. So, I mean, this isn't going away. Leishmaniasis is here to stay. I, I, what are your thoughts to, to, to sort of close this conversation? What are your thoughts for the future on this? Well, right now, in, in the scope of the, the project we are doing, we are, we are asking ourselves the same question, like how this would inform um, policy making in a context of post-conflict and how how do we have to understand the relationship between health and conflict in order to come up with better solutions uh, to the to the problem? I think leishmaniasis, even though again it's a it's a minor, let's say a minor disease, it's an emblematic case to kind of uh, disentangle what this relationship between war and health has been in Colombia, and it's an emblematic case also very illustrative to understand what kinds of problems there might be in rural areas of the country that need to be solved urgently in order to think about how we repurpose healthcare for peace building. 
um, and how we organize healthcare and public health, because part, part also of what I have shown with my research is, is that areas such as biomedical research, like what scientists do in labs and so on, and, and public health uh, have participated in the production of violence through the case, leishmaniasis is a case that shows how biomedical research and public health can have a participation in the production of violence in the context of an armed conflict like the Colombian one. And I think those are areas, for example, that people don't imagine as being participant in a warfare, or you don't think that scientists might be in a way participating in this whole issue, and they are, even, even from good intentions and from... Uh, trying to do their best, but they end up entangled, as I say, in marañados, which is like a concept that I develop in my research in this whole issue, even if you are not aware of that or even if you don't want to, but they end up there. Um, so what should be done, I think, well, in, in terms of Venezuelans, I think uh, there are many people thinking about this right now, like how uh, the work, for example, of Natalia Acevedo, uh, she has been studying how... Uh, healthcare professionals, they are key in order to make the access of uh, healthcare services for Venezuelans happen in Colombia, even though they don't have access to them, according to regulations, only as I said, if they are uh, emergencies. And, and what we are um, documenting now is that they have a great need of uh, diagnosis and treatment for leishmaniasis. Um, and other, many other diseases and health conditions. So that, that needs to change. Also, um, the crime, criminalization of uh, people working in coca plantations has also led to not considering leishmaniasis as a, a professional disease or occupational disease as it is considered in the army. And they are like these people in that suffering from these diseases, such as leishmaniasis, because of the work they are forced to do, because they, they live in very marginal uh, or in, in a very marginalized condition and under poverty, and they are forced to work in this in this uh, coca field. And, and that's why they end up having the disease. So um, we need also to start thinking of leishmaniasis in ways that account for how it is related to certain occupations and how we need to stop criminalizing those occupations uh, that people engage with because of the poverty they are facing or the different problems they are facing. Um, and of course, we need to, to provide treatment for everyone who needs it and question also our policy of treatment. Like, as I said, the treatment is terribly uh, harmful and toxic. Uh, so we need to reconsider what other alternatives we have in order to treat this disease. And there are some alternatives, uh, but they are not made available. So we need to kind of rethink the whole public health strategy on leishmaniasis and stop making it a pharmaceuticalized policy that is based strongly and only on glucantime, on this very toxic treatment. We need to move beyond that and provide other alternatives to the people suffering from this disease. And, a yeah. more inclusive healthcare plan for, yeah. for these uh, isolated, marginalized areas. I hmm. thank you so much for that. It was, I mean, I've been absolutely, you've informed me beyond 
what I possibly ever knew <laughs> on leishmaniasis <laughs> and the regions in Colombia. Uh, and I know, it, you know, it's not an easy time for you right now. And I'm so very appreciative for your time because this has been totally fascinating. I'm now going to go and repeat almost everything you've told me to my wife uh, and, uh, <laughs> and keep her informed because it's, I mean, thank you so much for your time uh, on this one. And I will you know, point people in the direction of your academic articles and so on, because it is an important one, because it's, as you say, repurposing healthcare for peace building. And I think in, in that concept, it's, it's, all, it's all encompassing, really. So uh, let me take this moment to thank you, uh, Dr. Lina Beatriz Pinto Garcia, for your time uh, today and coming on the Columbia Calling podcast. It's been a real pleasure. No, thank you so much again for the invitation. Like I, I can talk this about this for hours and hours. So, um, and I love to do it, and I love to share my work. And so, thank you so much for for the invitation. And and yeah, and I hope that more people get interested about these issues and how we can think of areas like health that uh, do not seem to related to our violence problems, but they are. Yeah, oh. totally related so yeah. uh, well thank you again everyone for listening this has been episode 396 of the Columbia Calling podcast I've been Richard McCall talking to Dr. Lina Pinto Garcia uh, please always you know spread the word about the podcast share it all over the place we're trying to get word news about Columbia out there that goes beyond what's just in the headlines here uh, you know in our mainstream press thank you again and goodbye everyone.